No, no, you already did that. We don't have time for that. We got too much to get into. All right, stop, stop. All right. Listen, thank you guys. Thank you for that. That's very sweet. My children enjoyed the ice cream. Um, oh, it was just for my family, for my spiritual birthday. But to be consistent, we should have given everyone who had a birthday yesterday a spiritual birthday. I forgot to say this yesterday, but if you came to Christ last night, you're born again, we have the same birthday. That's so cool. Let me ask you a question to start off. When did you come to Christ, or when did you give your life to Christ last? If you didn't say this morning, something's off. Gotcha. Because the reality is, everything that I called the students to last night, all of you tonight, last night, and then for those who made commitments to Jesus, that is the call to all of us every day. The reality is, if I asked you, when did you last give your life to Christ? You should have said, this morning, I gave my life to Christ. And what I mean is by that is not you're getting saved every morning, but every morning you are freshly surrendering to Jesus, freshly surrendering to his ways, his truth, his life, his spirit, saying, I'm going to come under the influence of the Holy Spirit today when there's going to be a lot of other influences today. I'm going to choose this morning that my heart is going to be yielded to you today. Let me give you a text to consider that. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, Jesus is speaking, let him deny himself and take up his cross at Hume and follow me. Take up his cross once a year at winter camp and at summer camp. Take up his cross one time in your life back in that day that you put in the decision card. No, 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 no. It is how often? Daily, daily, daily. Why does it have to be daily? Because daily we are assailed with lies. Daily you are tempted and I am tempted to take up our throne again. There is not a day that I have woken up since 2003 when I became a Christian 19 years ago in one day where I did not wake up and that day I felt the temp I felt no temptation that day to not be my own God. It comes in different forms in different ways, but every single day you and I have that same fight. Will you today let God be God? Will you let him define truth for you? Will you let him tell you what reality is? Will you remind, let him remind you what your purpose is and why you exist and what, why you're still on this earth? I want to remind you that everything that I called the students last night to is freshly for you and me and every pastor, every staffer, every person in this room, every day, every day, surrendering to Jesus. One of the challenges with the format of Hume, it's very good, but one of the challenges that come with it is because there's a big emphasis on Thursday night for first-time decisions. And then for those of you who actually made a decision in the past, you're kind of like, oh, good for them. And easy to kind of distance yourself. But every day, we're called freshly to repent, to be a repenter. It's not something you do once. Every day, confess. Every day, turn to Jesus. Every day, call out to him. 
Again, you're not earning your salvation. You're not getting saved every day. But what you're doing is you're, you're posturing your heart. You're offering your heart to Jesus every day to let him be God. So the question I want to start as we, before we jump into John 15 is how do we take from camp what we have here? Back home? And not just take it back home, but grow to where if I see you next year, you're closer to God when I see you. And we're not doing this merry-go-round again, where you come in here pretty cold, pretty distant, worship is small, passion is small, closed up, and then by day three or four, your heart is softened, you, you, you rem- re- reminded how, much great, how good Jesus is, and you love him again, only to go back home, rinse and repeat, let the same relationships, the toxicity in your life, the same influencers come right back in and just choke out all the, all the fruit, all the good seed that was planted this week, all the fruit that God has been working in your life and, and you just foolishly just go back to the same patterns that you did before, go right back in the same addiction cycles before your heart gets harder and then maybe you come back for winter camp, rinse and repeat. Let's do it again. I don't want that for you, do you? What if you didn't need Hume? What if Hume was supplemental and helpful, but every time you came back to Hume, you were actually closer to God than when you last left, not trying to start over? See, because something that you may not realize, that there is no truly starting over. Every time you walk away from Christ, even for a season when you were exposed to the truth, it's not the same thing when you come back because your heart gets warped. It takes a lot more to come back. And if you go back again, it's a little bit harder to come back. And if you do it again, if you do that too many times, your heart can come to a place of being irreparable, irreparably broken at sometimes. I've seen this over and over again in churches where someone keeps going back to that same addiction. And every single time they come back, they, they cry, they weep, they make new resolutions. And then when they go back to the sin, the next time the tears are a little bit lighter. And they go back. And then six months later, they come back again. And this time, barely a trickle. Because their heart is just so numb from coming back. And there's a callousness that starts to happen in the heart. And so I I really want to challenge you, campers, if you have this momentum, this this passion that's building, let's, let's, let's capitalize on it. Let's keep running and keep going. So that two weeks from now, you're closer to God than you are even right now. But every single time I preach at Hume... I have a student or many students come to me tearfully, usually on Thursday night, <laughs> and they say to me, Sam, I do this every stinking year. <laughs> I'm so sick of doing this. I don't want to fall. I mean, anyone feeling that? Just like anxiety of like going back home and you're like, I don't want to go back. Anybody feeling that? I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. So I'll, I, usually if I have time, I'll sit with these students and this is something I do at my church too. I'll sit with someone who's telling me they're under the dark cloud of depression and their, their heart is hard and they're, they're struggling with sin and, and all this kind of anxiety. And I start going through the checklist. Hey, tell me about the time with Jesus. I, I don't spend time with Jesus. When was the last time you read the word? I don't read the word. Could it be that? No, no, it couldn't be that. It's probably something else. Tell me about your phone usage. How much time do you spend on uh, social media? Oh, you don't know? Hold right, let me see your phone. Okay, let's look at weekly updates. Oh, eight hours a day. Maybe it's that. No, no, it's not that, Sam. Not that, Pastor Sam. 
How much scripture have you memorized lately to fight against the lies that you're prone to fall into? Oh, none. You don't know any of it anymore? Oh, okay. Um, are you serving right now? Trying to disciple anyone? Nope. Okay, so you're not pouring into other people? Okay, maybe, maybe that's it. No, it's not that, Pastor Sam. I know, it's not that. One of the great dangers for every single person in here, and me included, is something that I like to call exceptionism. Exceptionism. And what that means is that one of the lies of the flesh and one of the lies of the devil is to say that you're the exception. So if this word says that you need to be in God's word daily to to be filled spiritually, the lie that you will believe is, no, I'm the exception. I don't actually need that. I, I get a pass on that. And so that when your life starts to spiral and your heart goes cold, you're like, well, it can't be the fact that I never read my Bible. You've got to be something else. We try to give ourselves exceptions. And what I'm going to give you tonight is not exceptions, but the rhythms and norms for every Christian, every Christian without exception, to flourish. And one of the dangers is some of you guys are going to hear, hear this and say, oh, that's cool. I hope the other guy next to me takes notes. I don't need that. I actually don't need those kind of disciplines or the rhythms in my life. Other people need that. I don't need that. And yet you're surprised every year how you fall right back on your face in the same patterns of addictions and brokenness. You are not the exception. You are unique. God has only made you, but you're not that unique. <laughs> Can you hear that from me? <laughs> With the Father's heart of love, you are unique. And I think our culture really highlights the fact that we're all unique. And that is true in one sense, but you're still a human there are still patterns that all of us share. There's still streams of thought and ways that we all live and what makes us flourish and what makes us flounder are similar. Listen, I'm gonna to talk to you tonight about how to abide in Christ. I'm gonna explain what that means in a minute. But let me tell you this. Everything about our culture is designed so that you cannot abide. They're literally multi-millionaires who get paid big bucks who sit in Silicon Valley and their entire job is trying to find a way to get your attention so that they can make ad dollars from you. Think about that. There are smarter guys and girls than you who literally sit around full-time for their job. It's called the attention economy and their whole job is to get you to get, have your attention. And it's not on Christ. They're not Christians, largely. And so you have this entire tech world trying to monopolize your attention, your affections, your thoughts. Our whole culture, phones in our pockets, waking up to phones, using them as alarms. All these things are designed and set up for us to fail. And I'm not talking about us going Amish and us revolting from the world by, by just going off-grid. But what I'm, what I'm going to present to you is that you need to be very, very intentional about all that you do if you want to abide in Christ in this age. You have to be intentional. Listen, if you've ever seen a really beautiful, healthy marriage, there's not a lot of them, but if you've ever seen one of them or heard of them, what you will notice is a beautiful harmony. It's almost like a dance the way they understand, the way they can just look at each other and communicate, the way they work together in the kitchen or with their kids, there's this beautiful dance that they have. And if you sit there, if you have the privilege of seeing one of those marriages, 
And just looking back in awe, there's something inside of you that yearns and says, man, that's how, how the world is supposed to be. There's this beautiful unity. And that's, if we think about Ephesians 5, the marriage is supposed to show the love of Christ, the gospel in flesh. And, but, but if you see that marriage, that marriage didn't come on accident. That marriage came with work, counseling, blood, sweat, and tears, lots of fights, working through things, reading things together, learning, humbling. It takes work. And I think all of us intuitively know that really good relationships take work. Wait, how are you so close to your dad or your mom? Oh, we we, want to spend time together. That doesn't make sense, right? That doesn't work. Same thing, like if, for those of you guys, relationships not your thing, maybe, maybe sports is your thing. Hey, guys are like, sports, yeah, sports. I'm listening now, Sam, right? Sports is your thing, okay? You'll never find an Olympic athlete who's actually successful, who's like, oh yeah, I just never trained. I, was, I woke up like this. I was born like this. No, they may be born with some natural athleticism, but what makes them the top 1% of the 1% is that they train and their entire life is designed in order to get that gold medal right? Every single thing, every decision they make is wrapped around where they live, what they eat, when they sleep, who they hang out with is all designed around that one thing. And they're successful. You're not like, oh, that was, must have been a mistake. You just stumbled upon a success. No, they had to work their butt off. You guys get that, right? You get that. That's why we're in all of those moments. That's why we cry when we hear those old success stories of how this happened, this happened, this happened. Why would we expect any different for the, from the, with the spiritual life? Why would you expect anything different with your relationship with Jesus? If every single thing in our life that matters, everything that is significant, takes work for it to be flirt, to flourish and to be good, why would our relationship with Jesus be a completely different category? Listen, you will not stumble accidentally into great intimacy with God, great formation to be like Christ. You will not. You have to be intentional. You won't just wake up one day more like Jesus, wake up one day more hungry for the word. These things need to be cultivated over time. Every single thing, like if you ask me how long I've been preparing for these sermons, some of you guys saw me preparing this sermon like an hour ago in my golf cart. I've been preparing this sermon for 19 years. Every single thing that I'm doing with the Lord is just building slowly, cultivating intimacy with the Lord. And so that in these small moments I have with you, I can pour out what God has poured in. This takes time. And a lot of you guys here, if I told you, you guys are all probably exceptional at something, whether it's a video game or if it's a sport or an art or you're so good in the classroom. But it takes time, right? It takes obsession. It takes work. You have to have that mindset. But I have really good news for you. This verse, I, I learned it when I first became a Christian. It's one of the first verses I ever memorized. I, I commend it to you. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We can just stop it right there, but keep it up. When I first heard this verse, I about lost my mind. Do you know why? Because I got a taste of the glory of Jesus and the sweetness of Jesus. And when I read this verse and I heard it unpacked, an explosion went off in my heart. Are you telling me I can be as close to God as I want? Is there anybody in the world right now that you wish you could get closer to? Yeah? Celebrity, someone, an idol, a hero, maybe a parent that's absent, right? We all have someone in our life that we wish we could get closer to. And maybe they're, but, but you know what the challenge is with that? Is that it takes two to tango there, right? Right, you may have a hero on, online or someone that you look up to, but if they don't want, have, want to have anything to do with you, do you have any chance? No. 
Restraining order. Sorry. (laughs) I don't know you. But the God of the universe, the most beautiful, the most precious, is saying, listen, every single one of you, without exception, if you want more of me, you can have more of me. Isn't that amazing? You can have as much of Christ as you want. You can draw near to God. For every step you take with Christ, he will take steps towards you. That's amazing. So with that framework, classic Sam 16-minute intro, let's get into John 15. Let's pray. (laughs) Oh, man. Let's pray. Father, I hope that intro was hopeful, helpful, setting a foundation. And God, I, I thank you that you've been with me on this stage, that you've illuminated your word, not my words. And I pray again that you'd meet us. Speak to every student here. Would you brand on their heart, seal it with the fire of the Holy Spirit, truths that will last a lifetime, that will shape them, propel them into the future of what you have for them. Please help me be a faithful communicator of your good word, your truth, and let our hearts be soft and open to receive whatever you have. In Jesus' name we all pray, amen. 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 All right, John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus is going to use a farming or gardening kind of illustration, imagery, and I'm going to unpack it in a minute. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. There is so much here. And this chapter actually starts off on a pretty hefty warning, sobering warning. If you do not bear fruit, you will be taken away. I don't have time to unpack all the implications of that statement, but there's a sobering warning here. Christians bear fruits. True Christians bear fruits because when, the, when you are born again, you have the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Produce fruit. But if you claim the name of Christ and you, season after season, progressively do not bear fruit, This passage says that you will be taken away. But for those who are in the vine, those who are Christians, God needs to do something in order for you to bear more fruit. What does it say here? What does he need to do? Starts with a P. Good. Prunes. What does pruning mean? Well, pruning is the process of a gardener, to take off pieces or parts of a plant that are not healthy. And if you don't clip them off, take them off, then the plant will ultimately not bear the maximum amount of fruit and health. Now pruning, that's not not pain-free, is it? It's painful. Sometimes it's ugly. And the, the reality is our good, good father because he loves us and he wants us to bear much fruit for him and for our own joy as well, he will prune you. You will go through seasons of unimaginable pain at times. There will be moments of your life, even in this next year, where you're going to say, oh God, oh God, I need you. Oh God, oh God, where are you now? I am telling you this so that you are not caught off guard. 
you will be pruned. You will be disciplined, as Hebrews says in Proverbs 3. Why? Because the Father disciplines those whom he loves, like good fathers do. Because it is an unloving thing to allow your children to have unhealthy, toxic fruit that destroys them slowly. That is an unloving thing. Just like if one of my children, God forbid, had cancer, had a tumor, it would be unloving for me not to have a surgeon remove and painfully cut that tumor out of them, wouldn't it? And if you were to look from a different vantage point, you're saying, why, oh why would you let someone cut open your son, right? You're such a bad dad. If you frame it that way, it sounds bad, right? Did you hear Sam cut open his son, <laughs> right? But why am I doing that? So my son or my daughter can bear much fruit, so, so they can flourish. In the same way, there are things in your life, people, relationships, hobbies, different idols of your life. Sometimes they're good things, but they're distractions. They're not inherently sinful, but they are sinful for you because you've idolized them. And sometimes they're inherently sinful things. And God is going to take you through seasons of pruning. And the more resistant you are, the more you are in love with those idols, the more you hold on to those idols, the more painful the process is as he pries your living hands off, your, off these things that we cling to. I want to warn you, you will be pruned. I went through the most painful pruning process for about a year. And it took about a year. And God did a mighty work. And throughout the time, I struggled God, why, why, God, why? Why? What does the text say? Why? Why is he pruning me? Why? That I may bear more fruit. And you know what? I'm bearing so much more fruit because of what he did in me in 2020. Or 2021, I don't know, it's all a blur. <laughs> Some time ago. He will prune you because he loves you. Do not accept the culture's lie that pain is inherently evil. God uses pain in a very gentle, intentional way to bring forth life in you. And the reason why is because you and I are so gravitated towards darkness, towards things that take life from us. And sometimes it takes a loving father to pull us from things that bring death to us. I'm gonna get back to this in a second. He wants you to bear more fruit. Do not accept the lie that if you are a Christian, your life is going to be easier or better. That is promised in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes and makes all things right. All things right. Do not fall into the lie. God, I started serving at, at church and, and I'm reading my Bible and I'm not doing that addiction anymore. I deserve something in return. And if you have that mindset, mindset, I encourage you to fight that lie. That is not the gospel. Our relationship with God is not transactional. It's not, God, I'm doing good things for you. Now you deserve, I deserve you to bless me back. My life needs to be better. You can literally get cancer next week, kids. One of you who gave your life to Jesus, you may get cancer next week. I don't know. I, God forbid, I pray that you wouldn't get cancer. I'm just saying that on this side of eternity, this life, Jesus says that you'll have many troubles many trials to enter the kingdom of God. And I'm saying this with love because I don't want you to be disoriented when those moments of pruning happens. 
as if God is not in control, like, as if that's not in this book warning you that that will happen. Why? Because ultimately God wants you to bear more fruit and he has a long-term vision for your good. Think about my son or daughter if we're trying to give them. Um, I remember one of my children, they, uh, they were in the hospital when they were really young because they had something called a hernia. Okay? And I remember having to hold him down or her down whoever it is, <laughs> for them to get help from the doctors. <laughs> and I remember him looking at me like, why are you doing this to me, Dad? He was in so much pain. And the guy that was helping him was like a learning doctor. He was like an intern. He was doing it wrong. <laughs> I was mad. I was like, you better get this right this next time. <laughs> My son is dying. Well, he's not dying. He just feels like he's dying, right? And I just use that illustration is that there's times where you are feeling pain, and I want you to know that the Father does not delight in your pain. He weeps in your pain, he feels your pain, but he has a bigger vision for your life. Just like I had a bigger vision for my son, that that would be good for him long term. There are things that are good for you that you will not see in the short term. And I think you all know intuitively, if you were grown up at all, there are things in the past that were really hard that now you look back, you're like, wow, I'm grateful for that. How much more are other things? And indeed, there will be more things. Let's keep going. John chapter 15, verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. There's a lot here, but to be brief, the word has a cleansing power. Do some of you guys feel a little bit, a lot more clean now than you did when you first came in? There's a cleansing power of the word. It washes us of the lies and the shame and the junk of the world. One of the reasons why you need to be in this every day is because it washes you, cleanses you. Ephesians 5 mentions this too, by the way. Abiding in him, verse 4 of John 15. This is where we're going to spend a little bit more time. John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you. Would you read this with me? Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit. Oh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. What's this word abide mean? Where you don't use that word. You abide in dude. Like we don't use that word in our culture. Abiding, some translations use the word remaining. So dwelling, you could use that word kind of. It's the Greek word meno for those of you guys who are nerds who like that stuff. Um, so Jesus says this illustration that there's a, there's a vine. Okay, this is like the, the main part of the plant. Most of it's gone because I ripped it off. Sorry, plant. It'll grow back. And these are the branches. These branches are dependent on this main vine, right? If I ripped off this branch, this vine, if I didn't rip this part off, could still grow, right? It doesn't need these. They're dependent on this vine. And what I understand abiding is, maybe the best way I can conceptualize it for you is that when we do not abide in Christ, and I'm going to show you four ways we abide in Christ, according to John chapter 15, four ways to abide in Christ. When we do not abide in Christ, we're still connected to Christ, but it's like we're pinched. Now, this is not that very flexible, but if you've ever felt certain plants that are a little bit more um, 
they, they have a little more give in it. You can kind of pinch it, you know, like if you had like a, a balloon. And over time, initially, the, the flower is okay. But over time, if you pinch it and it's lacking connection to the vine, it loses its sustenance, it loses its life, it loses its vitality, its blood, so to speak. And eventually, what, ha- what will happen? This one already has it happening to it. I picked it on purpose. It's wilting. It'll start to droop, and eventually it will die. See, when you don't abide in Christ, you will slowly but surely suffocate yourself from the life-giving source that is God. And that's why verse 5 says what? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Not some things. Nothing. Nothing. This is one of the most unbelievable verses in the Bible. And you know why I say it's unbelievable? Because I think that almost no Christian actually believes that to be true. Do you really believe that verse? (laughs) No, you don't. I don't. Fully. Hence why we pray so little. (laughs) We're like, I'm good. I got this. You can do nothing meaningful, worthy, with any eternal significance, without Christ. Apart from him, you can do nothing. You must abide in the vine. You must remain in him. And that is something that is the, in, in the active. It's something you have to do. It's not something that just happens naturally and on accident. So let me share with you the danger of not abiding. I've already kind of alluded to you with that illustration, but look at verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. It's a frightening imagery. If you do not abide in Christ, you will be severed because you've already severed yourself and thrown away and burned. I'm not gonna get into that this evening because I wanna help you guys know what it means to abide. The first way to abide is abide in his word. Verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I wanna spend time on the first half of this verse, but the second half, let me make a quick comment. He says, ask whatever you wish and you'll be done for you. And if you're not a careful reader and you're reading things selectively, right? We're all tempted to do that, looking to the Bible for what we want it to say, not what it actually says. You read that second half, you're like, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. (laughs) Whatever I wish, right? And then if it doesn't happen, you're like, dang you, God, right? But what's the first part that this whole verse is contingent on? What should you be doing if you could ask whatever you wish? Abiding. Abiding in him and what his words abiding in you. Just like Psalm 37, delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What's the verse? 37.4. Yeah, okay. okay, 37.4, right? People are like, God, give me the desires of my heart. But I don't want to delight in you, right? The same thing, same concept. If you want to have a vibrant prayer life where you're regularly hearing answers to prayer, you have to be abiding in the vine abiding in his words, letting his words dwell in you. And when that happens, it will change the way you pray. And so you're going to ask things that God cares about. But the first half, how do you abide in his words? Well, you've been doing it all week, guys. You've been hearing me yell at you every day for like an hour or two, 
you've been reading your Bible, some of you have been memorizing scripture, some of you guys have been doing Bible studies, you have been seeing some of you guys doing Bible studies on the side, you are saturating yourself in God's word, so it's cleansing you, and you're abiding in his heart, you're understanding his will, and so back when you come back, go, when you leave Hume, saturate yourself in the word, I'm going to give you some strategies on how to do that with your church, but re-listen to these sermons, they're going to be on Hume's website, just go through them again. You, you probably picked up only 5 or 10% of the things I said because that's what, what happens when we listen to things verbally. Hear these sermons again. Get good books. Any of you guys struggle with reading? Yeah, I struggled with reading my whole life. You can't struggle with reading if you want to abide in God's word and, and, and abide in Christ. You have to learn how to love reading. I hated reading. But after I became a Christian and got serious about growing closer to Christ, I had to start learning to love to read because I wanted, not because the love of reading because I wanted to love God. I want to know him, right? And so I, I, I need to keep moving. Verse eight, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples. Ooh, what is he saying here? My father's glorified that you bear more, much fruit. So one of the realities and results of you guys bearing a lot of fruit because he prunes you as you abide in his word is that you will bear much fruit. And when you bear much fruit, what does it do? It proves that you are his disciples. Notice this word prove is not the word earn. You are not earning to be God's disciple or earning God's love or earning his approval. You've already received his approval through the cross. He's already paid for that. You have his righteousness. You have his love. You have his forgiveness. So you're not working for a place from a place to receive approval. You're working from approval. But what does it mean to prove? Well, let me ask you another question. Are you saved by works? Some of you guys are like, I'm afraid to say because you're maybe going to trick me. Right? <laughs> I feel like I'm supposed to say no, but yes and no. See, there's some passages that talk about being saved by your works. And there's other passages that emphatically say, no, we are not saved by works, but by grace. From, by grace you have been saved. So what, why does pa some passages sound like you have to earn your salvation or, or be proved your, by doing works? Well, if you look at those passages in context and you understand this word prove, what you're doing is not earning your salvation, but you are proving that God is actually at work in you. In other words, I am not teaching you a salvation of works, but a salvation that works. In other words, if the Holy Spirit actually is working in your life, over time it's going to progressively produce good works, good conduct, holy living, radical love. And so that's not earning your salvation, it's a proof that salvation has happened. You guys tracking with me? You guys are feeling me. I'm like, I got an amen crew over here. You guys are like, huh? Wait, you guys with me? You get, okay, you guys are, right, yeah, yeah. So listen, if you do not bear fruit season after season, and when I say season, I understand that there's times that we struggle. There's times of trial where fruit is bare and it's struggling, but I'm talking about when you pan out and look at the overall arc of your life, Season after season, if you are not bearing radical fruit by the Spirit, then you need to wonder if you are actually a Christian. 
I'm not saying you're earning your faith by your works or earning your salvation. What I'm saying is that that will produce good works over time if you actually are born again and the Holy Spirit is in you. It's the second way to abide. The first way to abide is being in his word, abiding in the word, saturating in the word. Second way to abide is meditating on his love or sitting in his love. Verse nine, as the father has loved me, would you read this? So have I loved you. Abide in my love. Are you kidding me? Did any of you catch what I just read? Or did that just go over your head? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hear this, hear this, hear this, hear this. Jesus is saying the way the, the Father loves the Son, that's the kind of love they have for you. And if you read the rest of this, of this whole section, John 14 through 17, he makes it clear that it's both the Father and the Son have that same kind of love for you. Listen, Jesus loves you like the Father loves Jesus. How lovable is Jesus? How wonderful is Jesus? How much, how much do you think the Father loves the Son? They've always been together forever. Can you imagine that? Can your heart receive that truth? That the Father loves you like he loves the Son and the Son loves you like the Father loves him? It's hard to receive. It takes the spirit to help you receive that kind of radical love because our hearts are so slow to believe that kind of love. Our hearts are so berated with lies and unworthiness that it's hard to believe that you could be that loved. Before you do anything, because you're not, not because of how great you are, but how loving he is. He loves you like he loves the son. The son loves you like the father loves the son. Do you, do you hear that? Receive that, sit in that, abide in that truth. Meditate on that truth. How do you abide in the vine? Meditate on the fact that he loves you with that kind of unfathomable, everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Yahweh says in Jeremiah. Number three, how to abide in Christ? Keep his commandments. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Let me ask you this. Have any of you guys ever obeyed Jesus in an area that felt so painful, so scary, so hard, and the moment you did it, you were like, I'm so happy I did that. Just love floods you, joy floods you, and you just feel this relief. But before you did, said yes, and before you obeyed, you just felt like it was the weight of the world. Like you're like, I can't do this, I can't do this, I'm so scared. And you do it, and you're like, whoa! Right, like there is something about the pleasure of the Father that just flows from heaven, overflows from heaven upon you when we obey him. So happy and so pleased. Listen. You know, it's funny, that's the first time, I think, when I preached in Jonah in the winter camp, it went off, like, every single time. There was some word in the text in Jonah that sounded like Siri, or hey Siri, and it just kept going off. Um, it's always listening, always listening. I hope they're listening. Hear the gospel. 
I don't mind that Alexa listens to me all the time. I'm like talking good stuff, so you, you listen. Um, listen, part of abiding in God's love is obedience. How do you do this? Well, listen, the best thing I can call you to do, one of the best things I can call you to do is to be a yes man. What I mean by that, if you've ever heard the term yes man, it's a derogatory term, right? It's like a person who's like, yeah, whatever you say, whatever you say. But the only person that would be acceptable to do that to is God. (laughs) Because whatever he says is good and better and wiser than you. (laughs) And listen, every single time you say yes to Jesus, you say you're yielding to the influence of the Holy Spirit. We're always under a spectrum where we're yielding to the Spirit or the flesh. And every single time you say yes to the Spirit, the Spirit's voice and influence and your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit strengthens and your heart gets softer, and you start loving the things of God more, hating the things that he hates more. But it, and, and so, yes, oh, that's so hard, I don't wanna do, but okay, yes, whew. No, not that, yes, oh, whew. yes, you know? You keep saying yes to him, you get closer and you're closer, and you have more of the Holy Spirit's power in your life. But the moment you start saying no, even to a small things, Lord's like, hey, spend some time with me, get off your phone. No, no. Then the Spirit's voice is a little quieter next time. Your heart is a little harder, a little less guilty when you say no. Hey, turn that off. Nah, I'm too tired. Hey, go talk to that kid who's sitting by themselves. That's kind of awkward. No. And every single time you say no, your heart gets harder. You hear the voice less. The word of God becomes less responsive and less meaningful to you. And then all of a sudden, six months later, a year later, you realize your heart is so cold and dead towards the Lord. The best thing I can tell you to do is that from here on out in your life, every single time you sense the Lord telling you something through his word, you just say yes. Tell this person about the gospel. I don't know what to say. Yes. All right, I'll do it. Let's let's go. Just keep saying yes. Keep saying yes. Break up with that situation that's really unhealthy. I don't want to, but yes. Just yes and then ask questions later. I know that in our culture, we're very sensitive as we should be towards abuse of authority. But this is the only authority in the world that will never abuse you. This is the only authority that you don't have to question his competency. You can say yes and then ask questions as you go. And yet in our culture, our mindset is, I will only say yes if I completely agree with you and I, and I ask every question I want. No, no, no. With the Lord, yes, 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 yes. Let me show you another passage, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It's precious. I wish I could preach a whole sermon series on this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nation, nation, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, not, not just that though, what else? Teaching them to observe. What's that word observe mean? It means obey, keep. All that I've commanded you. Listen, there is so much in this book. I am calling you and challenging you to take up the great commission and learn to obey and observe all that he's commanded. There is so much more. Do you know why I go 56 minutes every time I preach to you guys? It's because I'm, there's just like so much here and I'm like trying to hold back and I can only hold back so much, right? There's so much more here. And I know that can feel intimidating and exhausting and, and scary, but that's a good thing because there's so much more to have of God. So much more of his heart to know. So much more intimacy to have with him. So listen, I, I call you to hide this word in your 
heart and know it front and back and learn how to observe all that he's commanded. There are certain things that you do right now that you are callous to that you don't know that it grieves God's heart. But one day you will. Let me give you one more text. Romans 12 to, some of you are familiar with this one. Do not be, would you read this with me? Do not be conformed to this world. This is a process. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews even talks about those who are mature have their powers of discernment trained to know what was good and evil. Knowing what is true, what is good, what is right is a process. You learn more and more as you grow in God's word and as you let the word baptize your imaginations and your thinking and your understanding of reality. Right now, all of us have been discipled by the world in varying degrees. And it takes a long time to detox from the lies of the world and see the world the way God sees the world. Remember, part of us surrendering to the truth, we are, we are surrendering to God's definition of reality and what is true. And it takes time, students. It takes time. I just want to tell you very lovingly, all of you in here, including me, have unbiblical thoughts about the world right now. There are ways you think about people, ways you think about situations that are not the way God thinks about it. And that's okay right now. And God wants to take you from there and show you his mind and his heart about things. Renew your mind. It takes time. It takes a lifetime. Now back to John 15. What is the result of this kind of obedience? I touched on it already. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you. Why? Purpose? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Why does God want to have you obey all these commands and do all these things and abide in you? Well, a lot of reasons, but one reason is because he wants you to have joy. The Christian life is about joy. Not only joy, but there's a big aspect of joy. He wants you to have joy. And like I said earlier, if you've ever obeyed God when it was so hard, you know the feeling of pure joy that fills your soul. He wants you to have that joy in greater measure. The most mature people I know in Christ are the most joyful it's not a personality trait. It's a spiritual maturity trait. And simultaneously, the people who are most mature, not only are they the most joyful, but they're also simultaneously the most weeping and sorrowful. They're more in tune with the darkness and the brokenness of the world, so they cry deeply, and they're more in tune with the good glories of heaven and the goodness of the gospel, and they laugh loud. Both simultaneous realities. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Both realities is Christian maturity. Anyway, I wish I could teach on that right now. But no, fourth way of abiding is loving others. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Let's stop there for a second. Jesus commands you that you love other people the way he loves you. Did you catch that? That's insane. What kind of love does Jesus have for you? The same kind of love the Father has for Jesus. And what kind of love is that? Unending, unfathomable, steadfast, unconditional. <laughs> See, what Jesus calls us here is not moralism. See, what legalism or moralism is, is do this because the Bible says so. But what Jesus is calling us to do is what I've done to you, now do that to others. You see the difference? 
See, one of the reasons why Phil Vischer no longer like supports the VeggieTales and he started a new series is because he had a gospel awakening and he realized that telling kids to do this because the Bible tells them is not the gospel or do this because it'll make your life better. What a lot of churches and a lot of pastors teach is do this because the Bible says to. Do this because your life will be better. What Jesus says is do this because I've already done it for you. What God has done for you, he wants to now do through you. And if you look throughout the New Testament, there's a a ton of commands like this. And it all comes down, down to this heart. Forgive others, Ephesians says, as what? I have forgiven you. Love others as I have loved you. Youth pastors, make sure you ground every command you tell your, tell your students in what God has already accomplished and done for us. And if you don't, then you're just, you're just being like a good Jew. That's not Christianity. That's not gospel-based action. Students, Jesus doesn't call you to love people radically and just say, just do that. He says, you know how I love you radically? Now let's do that together and love others like that. You know how I'm so patient with you when you're so hard-hearted and dumb sometimes? Be patient with others like I am with you. Let's do that together. See the difference? But what kind of love are we talking about? What's verse 13 say? Greater love has no one than this, than to someone lay down his life for his friends. We're not talking about just a verbal love, cheap love, sacrificial love. How can you love others like Christ loves you? You have to abide in God's love first. You need to bask in the realities of the gospel regularly of how he loves you. You have to be reminded of his mercy towards you every time you sin and you come back to him. He says, come back. I'm so glad you're back. You live in that and therefore that starts flowing out of you. The people, the the Christians, so-called Christians who are unloving and unmerciful to people, are demonstrating they they don't know the gospel or they know little of the gospel. Because if you know how much God loves you through the gospel and how merciful and gracious he's been, what that does inside of you is transforms your heart from being vindictive and judgmental, but very open and loving and merciful. But the only way you guys can love like Christ is you know his love towards you and also you know how he loves. So you need to know the gospels well comb through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Know them well. Know Christ and the way he loves people. It's not like our love of the world. His love is very, very distinct. Know how Jesus loves. Listen, if you are a Christian, for those of you who did not stand up last night, you're either saying you are opposing God or you're saying I'm already following Jesus. And for those of you guys who say that you're, still, you're following Jesus, I'm assuming that means you've been following him for a while. And you know what else that means? That if you are one of those professing Christians, then that means that you should be exemplary and loving people. That if I asked your mom or your dad or anybody in your family who knows you well, they say, yeah, that person loves radically. That person loves people who are mean to them. That person loves people who are hard to love. Listen, the true mark of being actually a Christian is not that you sing loud or even know Bible verses while those two are good or that you go to Hume or you wear Christian t-shirts or whatever you want to think. But the true mark is that you, your life is marked with crucified love, cruciformed love, sacrificial love. So listen, you Christians here, 
Do you love like that? Is that your reputation? Not your own self-assessment. No, I'm a really loving person. What would people who really know you say about the way you love? What would people who don't like you say about the way you love? That's the mark of how much Christ has actually worked in you, how much you know the gospel. You know, I say this all the time in my church back home, but the great mark of maturity is how you respond when people wrong you and how you love them in return. When we bring up elders at our church and train up new pastors, I'm never comfortable laying hands on them and, and calling them a pastor and, and commending them to our church to vote on them until I've seen them be deeply wronged by someone and see them love back. Because it's only then, then and only then do I know the gospel has really worked through their heart and produced a heart of mercy and grace. But so many Christians are marked with vindictiveness. Don't you dare wrong me. Don't you cross me. Do you know who I am? Sam, did you know I walked and I said hi and they kind of looked at me and walked away? <laughs> do you know how much you do to the Lord on a regular basis? Do you know how merciful God is? Do you know how many times you've turned your face on him? How many times you spit in his face with your sin? How many times you have rejected him and said no to him and yet he keeps showing up and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you keep showing up and forgiving you. That's the same kind of love. Just as the Father has loved us and the Christ has loved us, so we love others. Now I want to remind you quickly, and skip some text for the sake of time, verse 18. It's really important for you to know, guys, because if you want to live this life of love, you're going to live the life of Christ. And remember the spoken word a couple last night or two nights ago. If Christ simply just loved and served and healed people, why would they want to kill him? Because the Christian life isn't just merely loving through trying to be nice, but loving through saying hard things sometimes. Because the message that you have to share with the world, to testify, is the greatest news ever, but it's also simultaneously the most offensive news ever. The gospel, you are saying that God loves you and has sent his son to die for your sin, but with that, you are implying and saying that you are worthy of dying for your sin. You have, enough, you have offended a good God and holy God. That is offensive. That can piss someone off. And so listen, Jesus warns us, verse 18. Did you read this out loud? It's a few slides down. Good job, guys. You're amazing. Would you read this with me? If the world hates you. Do you believe that? You ready for that? Some Christians are hated because they're obnoxious and they have social, they're socially unaware and they're arrogant and they're judgmental. But the kind of hate that Jesus talks about should be coming at us is because we're radically loving and proclaiming truth. And so listen, <clears throat> Christians were called to be in the world, not of the world. And if all your best friends do not love Jesus, something's off. I'm not saying you shouldn't have good friends who are 
not believers. What I'm saying is if your best friends, I mean, best friends in the most truest sense, they're like your best, you know, you know not like two second graders, but you're like, this is my real you know, best friend. That means to be at that level of friendship means that you, you have a significant amount of camaraderie and unity among high, important values. And if you follow Jesus, you will have to eventually tell your friend, listen, God loves you, but you need to turn and repent. That's, it's gonna be a hard thing. It's not an easy thing. You need to have tact. You need to have wisdom. You need to pray a door open, not a pry a door open. It takes time. But listen, you can't have the same kind of life with all your friends who don't know Jesus if you're serious about following Christ. Again, don't misunderstand me. Be a friend to everyone. Be the most loving person to everyone. But eventually, you will cross that bridge, and I'm gonna say this, and it's hard. Some of them will resent you for it. And you have to love them more than you love the relationship. Did you hear that? You have to love them more than you love the relationship. And that's gonna be hard that day because I have a lot of friends who I, I'm not close to anymore because we crossed that bridge and they said, Sam, I can't go there with you. And they don't like me because of the words I've said. And I'm certain there's times where I could have said it better, more humbly, more wise, but at the end of the day, no matter how perfect you present the gospel, it is an offensive message and simultaneously the greatest news ever. And so guys, if you listen, if you live the life of Christ, if you follow him, if you swim against the cultural currents of the lies of, that we swim in, you will be persecuted. And it's hard, guys. You need the Holy Spirit to embolden you with boldness and power to stand up in a culture where even the most basic truths that you'd say, you'll be called a bigot or unloving. It's because our culture is confused at what love is. And you're gonna have to take that, guys. You're, some of you guys are gonna have to take that where people are gonna call you and, and say that you hate when you love them. Just warning you, this is a cost and that's why we need the church. We need each other to support each other, to strengthen each other, to remind each other we're not crazy. Remind each other we're doing this because we love people and we have a bigger purpose. And there's a lot more context and a lot more training that goes into how to do this well. I'm not gonna do that in a few seconds, but I just wanna warn you that this is the reality if you're gonna faithfully follow Christ. You will have a moment where you'll have to cross a bridge with these friends and family members. And I pray that they will all come to Christ, but the reality is some of them won't. What's the reason why Jesus gave us this sermon, one of the last sermons of his life in John 14 and 15? John 16, 1 says here, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus is sharing this to keep you, to remind you this is what's coming. I want to keep you. I want to bless you. So how do you abide, guys? Four things. You abide in his word. You abide in him by meditating on his love. You abide in him by obeying his word, every word. And you abide in him by loving others like Christ has loved you. Now, we're out of time. So I'm going to flash a handful of slides. And youth pastors or leaders, if you want, you can take pictures of them. <clears throat> the first one is strategies to help you abide. Fundamentally, that's really hard to read. I want to challenge you is not to try to fit abiding with God into your life, but fi find a way to fit your whole life around abiding in God. I'm going to say that one more time. Instead of trying to find time with God to fit into your life, 
schedule and form your entire life so that you could spend time with God. Because your greatest priorities, you will always do it. If you are a gym rat, you'll get to the gym even if you're tired. If you love that show, you will make it happen. If you love that thing or that game or that whoever it is, that really, you make it happen. And so you start off fundamentally and say, what are my greatest priorities in life? You start from there and you build backwards. These will happen. Everything else is extra if I have time for it. If your sports schedule and your practice schedule does not give you enough time to spend time with God and you just can't go to church or do anything, then just quit the sport. Quit it. And if you can find a way to fit sport around God, then do but make sure you have the priority and the order correct. God is first. Everything is around him, and you have to figure out how the other things can fit around him, not trying to fit God into your own predetermined life and purposes. That's radical right there. You have, that, that will change your life if you think. So go back to the first slide. I, I'm not going to talk through. I, I need to stop. Okay, this is, this is a, a battle plan of how do you think about a strategy. Next Next one, you need to come out with a fight plan. Satan has a strategy against you to take you down. You need to preemptively think about what is your fight plan. Here are some things that you can do. You can take a picture of that if you want. Basically, start from a question of how would you cultivate a healthy relationship, a vibrant relationship with someone that was really important to you? And then from that point, you would schedule your life around. You'd have rhythms and dates and different things to make things happen. What do you need to add to your life and what do you need to take, in your, take away from your life to flourish? I want to encourage you to pick a place, time, and a plan. Start with 1 John, then 1 John, then read Galatians and Ephesians, then read Gospel of John, and then do a two-year whole Bible plan. That's just a suggestion for me. And then come up with a list of meta, meta, verses that you're going to memorize and use as fighter verses against certain true lies that you are susceptible into fighting. Okay, next verse. Ah. All right, get a study Bible. Great. They're helpful. Get them. Most of them are good. Okay, great. Take a picture of this. Every time you read your Bible, if you want to have a really great time in the Word, this is the best Bible plan I've ever heard. Very, very simple. Four questions. First one, you're just finding out what's going on in the text. The second question is you're asking, what does this teach me about the heart of God? What is God like? Second, third question, what does this teach us about man, both unbeliever and believer? And the final question is, how do I respond in light of this text? You do these four questions every single time you read the Bible, I guarantee you're going to have intimate, powerful, life-changing time in the Word. Next one, please. All right. Not only do you need to think about what do you add to your life, what do you need to take away? Consider your history. What historically has caused you to fall? What are the things, what are the relationships, the different habits that hinder you? Maybe it's video games, maybe it's social media, TikTok, whatever it is. Some of you need to take a break from your phones. You've already taken a week, so why not more? <laughs> Some of you need to cancel your Instagram account or TikTok or what's, what's, what is it called? Uh, Snapchat, thank you, whatever. <laughs> I'm old, <laughs> not really. <laughs> Whatever it needs to be. For me, I have a 10-minute timer on my iPhone that times out once I use Instagram longer than 10 minutes. Some of you, it needs to be less. Some of you, it may be more. I need that, and I'm 34, (laughs) okay? And I'm just guessing that you guys need something like that too. I have different timers. I have covenant eyes on my phone, not because I'm going crazy over lust, but because I don't want to go crazy over lust. Boundaries in your life are there not when you're strong, but when you're weak. So I have all these things in, because I don't want to wreck my marriage. I want to have a fruitful life. And so what you need to do is you need to reverse engineer all the things you want to be true about your life when you face God on Judgment Day. When you face on God Judgment Day, what do you want to be true about your life? You want to be a life of love. You want to not wreck your marriage. You want to have a good relationship with your kids or if you have kids or you want to do this, this. And take all those goals and then take steps back and say, okay, if that's my goal, what should I live in the day-to-day to make that goal happen? 
Anyway, next one. Here's some books you can consider reading. Some of them are really on point to what we said. Some of them are not related, like embodied, but it's just a big hot topic in our world. Thinking through transgender identities, church, and what the Bible has to say about Preston Sprinkle. Worthy of your time to take a look at that. Live No Lies, talking about truth. Really helpful book. Staff, is it a good book? Yeah. yeah. Okay, some of them are reading it, I think. <clears throat> hey, there you go. Good reference. Um, Gentle and Lowly, if you want to see the heart of Christ. It's a little harder to read, but it's really sweet. Um, oh, there you go. Amen. All right. Multiply. Uh, youth groups, worthy of going through. It's a free resource online, or you can buy the hard copy. It's a great discipleship guide. And finally, taking God as word. Really good. Next, next line. Final one, I think. Final slide. No more slides. Yay, we're done. All right. All right. All right. Listen, thank you. Thank you for your attention this week. I, re I realize it's been an hour and four minutes. Um, but listen, you guys can handle it. You guys can handle this. And um, it's been an honor. Listen, we're about to watch the recap video and then we'll go to Victory Circle. But I just want to say this. It's been an honor to open up God's word. And listen, you have the source wherever you go. You don't need me. I have the most intimate times of the Lord with him alone. I don't need a preacher. And I want you to get to that place where you don't need us, but we're helpful. Pastors are helpful, but you need to learn how to go to the source. So learn how to go to the source. It's been an honor. I love you guys. Thank you for your attention.